and welcome to the Back to the Pavilion podcast. It's great to have you with us. Thank you to everyone for tuning in. If it's your first time or join us every time, I really appreciate it. Thank you to everyone who helped spread the Back to the Pavilion podcast word too. Every retweet, like and share means so much to me. So thank you. This week we talked to a man who won everything there was to win domestically in the 90s and I'm sure had he played in the T20 era he would have had IPL and Big Bash teams knocking down his door to sign him. He hit big, bowled fast and lived even faster. He won five trophies in two years for the all-conquering Warwickshire side of the 90s and then his life took a turn. But I'll let him tell you all about that as we welcome Paul Smith back to the pavilion. When I stopped playing, I uh, I didn't want to be a coach. I didn't want to be a teacher, but I knew there was a massive gap in between because I'd worked in all sorts of working environments through sport uh, where I saw coaches communicate poorly. You know, there was an element of assumption that what they were saying, the, the message was sinking home, whereas I, I would like observe sometimes and think, well, you haven't communicated that very well. And if you were around certain people for longest periods of time, you know, look, it's not a case of a one-off incident. It's a, it's a pattern of not communicating correctly in order to get the best effect. <coughs> um, and we had a guy, obviously, who came to us at Edge Bassin called Bob Woolmer. Mm. And Woolley um, is the best communicator I've ever seen uh, in professional sports, certainly. I mean, I've met many great communicators in within community work. Um, uh, and Woolley asked me to coach in South Africa during the dismantling of apartheid. And he asked me specifically because of the job that he thought it would entail and the sort of person that might be able to do it. And he picked me, and that was St. Augustine's Cricket Club, where I was the first white professional they'd ever had. Basil Dolivira's club. Um, but it was talking about the rebuilding of a community. And I had to play a part in the community, not just in the critic club net, not just on a field on a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon. I lived on the other side of town. That's because initially certain people thought it might be safer because this is the dismantling of apartheid and people judge you on the color of your skin, the way you look, this, that, and the other. And you don't get a chance to say, hang on a minute, I'm actually here for you guys before you know it, you've been, it's all over. Um, so I lived across the other side of town, but I spent a huge amount of time within the community and they were surprised at how much I did. But that's because I got it. I got them as people. I understood their, uh, the life they'd had to live through, which was apartheid. I understood their struggle and it was it was hard. You know, for me, I used to, I love those people um, and our bond is very, very close. So when I actually stopped playing, I knew there was a, a much better way to link sports to education, to community, to job opportunities, to enlightenment, to sort of to, to show people or discuss with people that there's a better world out there. And these people had literally been, these are where, you know, you can't leave, for example, if you use city, city of Birmingham, you can't leave certain parts of town. You can't go and see your grandparents because they live on the other side of town. You can't see your children. And yet all the kids can be in a classroom together, but they don't walk home together because of something called COVID-19. Now, mixed messages or not, um, you know, there were restrictions. And because I because I I sought an audience, it's a bit like starting, if you if I'd wanted to be a cricket coach, then you know, I've done a load of coaching, that's easy because you know the audience is gonna turn up because cricket club audiences 
members of cricket clubs turn up on a Tuesday or a Thursday or whatever net practice night is, you know pretty much the sort of people who are going to turn up. So you're always going to have an audience. If you actually go into a community and try and form a cricket team, like this, what we did in, in um, Los Angeles, you start with a blank piece of paper. It's like the first day of starting a new business. So it depends what you actually want to do as an outcome. So if you want to coach kids or you want to coach people that have to be better players, that's easy. You've just got to change the mindset and maybe alter a few technical things. Um, uh, if you go, if you talk about working in other environments, you're talking about trying to change lives, and that that you know that, that is a much better prospect. You know, if I if I can help someone change their life, that's a much better thing than making them be able to bat for 15 minutes longer before they play Harry Carey on a Saturday afternoon. Um, so it's a different mindset and, you know, I find it more rewarding. I mean, you talk about sort of using cricket as a tool for change. How, how much impact can sport and cricket, you know, specifically have, you know, as a tool for changing people's lives? Well, I've seen it, I've seen it many times. Um, uh, I think that ultimately, if we're talking about cricket here, it could be anything. It could be the kid that, the person that grows up as a Manchester United fanatic, and that's his thing. He follows his club. When he gets a job, he's got his own money. Hopefully, he can afford to pay extortionate amounts of money to watch a game on Saturday or midweek. Um, and that's his thing. Some people find religion. Some people find, uh, some people are petrol heads and work on cars and, you know, uh, on Sunday afternoons and some people do this, some people do that. Um, in, in the case of cricket, I've seen it many times. It did it for me because I found cricket and at the age of 13 in my head, I knew I was going to play professional sport. Don't ask me why, um, I knew. Um, in in, in, in the, the, um, the, the different forms of cricket that I went through, you know, I saw people who were my age who died playing at the same cricket club as me, got a job on Saturday morning and you know, working for a guy who who also played at the club and he sort of turned up on Saturday mornings regularly and before he knew it, he was being offered half a day's, half a week's work and before you know it, he was working for the guy full time. You know, daft little things like that, being in the right place at the right time, showing that you've got fair character and that you're fairly reliable and you find your way through into the world. Um, it's a matter of being in, in positive environments and, you know, we you know, you may find that you play sport in the same time, the same team as a guy whose brother works in finance and you have ambition to work in finance. He says, why don't we go with a beer for a beer with my brother? And before you know, you're much smarter for the conversation. Um, it doesn't really matter. I think it's about, um, do we want our kids to find something positive or do we want to see them standing on street corners where in theoret theoretically, you know that there's no good happenings really taking place. Um, it's not as innocent a world as I think it was when we were growing up and hanging around street corners. Um, there was always, there's always been bad lads. There's always been characters within the community to keep away from. Your mom and dad would have guided you on that. Uh, whereas now people communicate in different ways, um, send messages. People don't even have to talk. They can stand 100 yards apart and be communicating through text messages and they're fitting someone up. Um, you know, it's a very different world and it can be pretty scary. Uh, so in theory, if children are our future, then they, you know, they need a lot of love and they need, a, need um, a lot of engagement and a lot of guidance. And it can't be left to the teachers, because in reality, um, if we're going to bring them into this world, then we have to play a major part and, and teachers will play a part in that process and people who think different should get smart. I mean, you've always, um, you know, 
always work with with young people. You mentioned South South Africa, but you've done that in across South America and Brazil as well. Has it always been something that's been really important to you working with young people? Young people keep you young, um, and and uh, in many situations, older people are are wiser, than, and you should listen to some people. Listen to people. You know, they always say. My father used to always say to me, son, it's all been done before. Um, and in reality, when you're a young man and you're in your late teens, 20s, 30s, whatever, you think you're doing a, a better version of what they may have been getting up to. <laughs> uh, but in reality, you know, it's pretty much the same sort of thing. Um, uh, the answer is, because I played professional sport from young, and, I, and, I, and I, an element of that, particularly if you were overseas, South America is an example. I went through Argentina, Brazil, Uruguay, Paraguay, Peru. I didn't speak Spanish. I didn't speak Portuguese, but I could communicate um, from walking into a shop and asking for a loaf of bread to uh, telling, telling the barman, can we have 10 more beers? I worked out how, how we could, how we could get, you know, sort of find your way through uh, that sort of place. And the very different, you know, and, and also I'm English and we've just finished fighting the Falklands War. And all of a sudden that they've got this Brit who's in Buenos Aires coaching their kids. And some of these people had older kids who'd been conscripted and fought in the Falklands and they'd lost their kids. So um, uh, working with youngsters came with the territory, really. Um, I never had a younger brother. Um, but, you know, I, I think that's... Uh, Sometimes if, if, if young people see the way that you play, maybe the way I played um, would uh, have excited them more so than if I'd gone being a batter who was a dour performer who hung around and, and all my job was to run up and try and tie it and end up as a, as a trundler. Um, because I could bowl the ball quick and I could hit the ball distance, um, hopefully that means that if you've got kids watching, they form a little line and they want to go themselves. So uh, that went with the territory and... I've always admired, you know, uh, a lot of people told me I've never grown up, whereas I think I have. I just refuse to grow up in certain areas of life where I see it's either people haven't got it right um, or it's a matter of not conforming to the way that they perceive life should be lived. I mean, see, I mean since you've stopped playing, you have, you know, you've dedicated your life to helping people through cricket and, you know, cricket without boundaries and then work with the Prince's Trust. What what was the you know what was the thinking behind those when you first started them out? Was it just wanting to share your love of cricket to help people? Or was there a bigger picture for you? Bigger picture was trying 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 make a tiny little difference within the community. Um, people, uh, I know people in all sorts of. Um, People talk about different levels of society. You know, you talk about the upper end of society, those with the high and mighty, the high flies, people who've made an awful lot of money and live in big houses and drive fast cars. And I've, I've seen plenty of that. I know people like that. I know people who live in um, <coughs> in council properties in, in on the other sides of town. I know people in, in all between, and people in the best bars, people in the roughest bars. Um, so from that, and I wasn't encouraged to be in those sorts of environments when I played professional sport. Um, however, I know, if you know people that you, from all sorts of walks of life, as long as you know you're safe, it doesn't really matter where you are because you wouldn't be there in the first place with these people if you weren't all right. Um, so from that, it was a great education about 
the sort of city that I was living in. I didn't just mix in corporate environments. I had people in, you know, if you use sort of a place like Handsworth, you know, that has, uh, that's, a, that's a part of the town that's had racial problems. It's had riots. It's had this, that, and the other. You know, people would say this, this about the community, that about the community. I've got a lot of friends there. And what I've, what I've heard sometimes is not what I perceive to be that community, but it, um, for me, it was a matter of how can you, how can you keep people's children's, you know, if you, moms are encouraged to go out to work in the last 20, 30 years. Um, and some of them have wanted to go out and, and play uh, and, and, and be active members of the working community. And, you know, that, there's nothing wrong with that. But what, it, what, it, what that has led to is like, for example, my mom was always at home. Mm. So um, my mom would always know where I was, even though that I would disappear for hours. She knew I was out on my bike and she probably worked out that I wasn't the sort of kid that was going to bring the police to the door. Um, uh, so really, knowing a lot of people in all sorts of environments from those that might be able to help fund it, this idea or these ideas to people who, who um, you know, they might be community leaders, they might be community elders, people who I know who worked in education, some people I knew that worked in policing. So you get a fair picture of what's going on. Don't always believe what I read in the papers because that's, you know, written for a certain purpose. No, but it's true. No, it's, it is, yeah. You know, I mean, you know, if you want to get, you want to solve a problem, be willing to roll your hands up. Don't just turn up to cut the red ribbon. That's nonsense. You know, you don't even need that. You know, the idea is you roll your sleeves up and you roll with it in order to get it to work. So you have to know your communities. You have to know, uh, you have to know the moms. You have to know the grandparents. You have to know the fathers and not always in the same room. <laughs> um, you know, it's fine to find out what's, <laughs> what's actually happening. It's, you can't just say this is all about gangs and all about drugs and all about this, that, and the other. Of course you can. But it's a much, much bigger picture than that. That's the outcome. So you have to work with the issues that lead to that outcome. So it's pretty simple stuff. And if you have a skill to communicate with young people or people generally, um, and you care about what's happening because, you know, we, we're supposed to leave this world in a better way. And sometimes it's very easy to look at all the negative um, that man has created on earth. Uh, but, you know, in order to put things right, you communicate better. So that's, to me, what, you know, something like Cricket Without Boundaries was. That was about bringing people from the poorer side of town into a state-of-the-art cricket uh, stadium with a state-of-the-art practice facility with a classroom attached to it. These people were unemployed for four and a half years minimum in order for us to work with them. My job is to motivate them both verbally, visually, um, and also sort of give them a game of cricket or some sort of activity in the afternoon where they would learn, they would learn that they'd actually worked that out for themselves. It made them feel better about themselves and it would, it would be real basic stuff. But it would only be real basic stuff because the way that I would communicate it. I don't care if you're any good at it, as long as we work out where we didn't get it right at the end, then we'll be better next time. And it always worked, you know, because people would, you know, you know you're, talking, you're, talking, you're dealing with mental health issues. You're talking about people who sat on couches for four and a half years in many cases. Um, so to get them back into work, and we got 40% of them back into work over a decade, it's a pretty high percentage. Yeah. Bear in mind, you, there's a natural fallout. Uh, people can't come anymore because they have to look after the mother or, you know, all sorts of issues. Some people you know will never come back tomorrow because they don't want to be here in the first place. So if you don't win them over in the first 30 minutes, it's that'll be, 
whether it's lunchtime or there is come turn up tomorrow. So th those worked. We set up another company called Coachrite where we targeted um, kids in areas where I perceived that there wasn't a lot for them to do. And yet within 18 months, we were in 150 schools and 20 community groups. Um, and, we're, and a hell of a workforce of coaches, but not just people who had a soccer coaching badge or, or a cricket coaching badge, you know, coaching, whatever. They had to be able to communicate with the audience and it, and it helped us if it was their community, you know, and it was easy for me to turn up. And because of my background, you may get a few more turn up, but, um, and that's all right, because that's about inspiring and showing that you care. But in reality, I'm looking out at that very audience right in front of me and saying, who's going to be the person who can do this in six months' time, in 12 months' time, and, and, and explaining how you could actually get a qualification uh, in order to deliver this. And you may have to turn up and, and be someone's right-hand man to shadow them until you get to understand the best way to communicate it, because you may have learned over six Saturday mornings over the winter how to pass a coaching bag, but that doesn't mean to say what you're going to be any good when you've got 15 kids from a rough part of town and they love the sport, but you, they're looking for you that, you, you know, you've got to win them over. You've got to, they've got to know that you are there for them and not just the new version of what they've always had. But after a while it stops, it had to be permanent and it had to be outcomes and uh, those worked. Uh, and then you take it overseas, South Africa. You know, I went back to South Africa. I worked in America. Uh, Princess Trust, my job was to go in and inspire, um, to give talks. Uh, and, and I think obviously like the day before, because people would be on 12-week courses, they'd walk out with 12 certificates at the end of it and work experience. And often, uh, often many of them would go into jobs and most of them had been excluded or in danger of being excluded from, they'd had the sort of childhood that I hadn't. But I knew kids who had the sort, same sort of childhood when I was a kid. So I was lucky. I knew that my mom and dad had my hand. And when they weren't with me, they had my back. And if you know that, uh, in any aspect of life, you know what? Makes your job, makes your life a lot easier. So if you haven't, if you don't have it, you've got to understand it. You've got to understand what it's like for this, this young male or this young female. Uh, you know, they're like, and life's not easy at the best of times, even for those that have it easy. So imagine what it's like when you don't have it easy. Uh, so my job was, they, so they would say, we've got an ex-professional cricketer who's going to come in and spend tomorrow with us. And, you know, da -da 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 -da. the last person on earth they thought was, uh, <laughs> was going to walk in the door the next day was me. Because <clears throat> I'm talking to them about so much more than just bat and ball. You know, I can, I can talk to them all day about 16 years uh, as a professional sportsman, and if someone did that to me, they'd bore the pants off me within 30 minutes. Um, uh, so, you know, the outcomes with the Prince's Trust were the same. You just try and move people forward. You, you know, they learn a sport, and that's cool, and if a few of them join the local club, that's even better. Uh, but in reality, it's about education. It's about moving people forward. I mean, you mentioned there that you, you worked in America and, and South Africa again. Do you have to change your approach when you go overseas where you may be not as well known so you know in the, in the UK you're Paul Smith ex-cricketer but in, in the US do you have to change your approach at all? Yeah you always have to have someone who's got your back because where you're going into people carry guns like you and I carry mobile phones or car keys so um, and also often you're not a colour that's overly familiar with that part of town you know 
Um, so, uh, do, you, do you change your approach? Yeah. I mean, you know, for me, it's, it's about them. It's not about me. So, you know, I'm obviously introduced into certain environments by a person um, who is familiar with the people in front of me. Um, uh, my background would probably be explained, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, it's a matter of, I'm, I'm as curious as they are. You know, I mean, what do we want out of this? What, you know, what do we want the outcomes to be? To use America, there was a, a team called the Compton Cricket Club. And if, you're, if anyone's familiar with um, inner city America, then, then the name Compton, the, Compton would be pretty familiar, mostly through rap music. Uh, but, you know, it has, you know, there's quite some pretty famous, um, obviously there's some famous musicians, rappers, um, but there's a lot of, you know, sort of some pretty famous sportsmen. Um, however, you know, it's, it, it's certainly, well, from day one, you always have gangs. I don't care what, what part of town you're in. There's always been an element of gang uh, rivalry. But, you know, in, uh, things progress over a 50, 60-year period. Um, if you expect to go into Compton, South Central, Inglewood, what, as a white guy, um, you know, sort of just go about your business and people not to sort of clock you. Uh, you'd be pretty naive. Um, so, you know, you have to work out the best way to spend time in those environments. You meet people, you know, I met as in America, I met more political activists, more community workers, more people, more kids in gangs, and um, more this, more that, more homeless people than I ever did anyone who played cricket. But I did spend time around people who played cricket. And that was part of the reason that I would be there. And then it was a matter of how can we get this funded correctly? How can we get governing bodies to understand what this is all about? That gathering of young people who, when they first started with Ted and Katie at Compton Creek Club, their lives would be, um, everyone was in danger of being excluded. End of. Um, that's just almost like a figure of speech, but you know, as a society, they were in danger of being excluded. Uh, for many different reasons. And I won't just talk about the racial ones because it wasn't just black against white. It would be, it would be Hispanic, it would be Latino, it would be, it would be anything. I don't really care really. When I look at people, I don't see color. I just see whether, whether, whether we're safe in that environment. Um, and I wouldn't judge whether I was safe, whether a guy had a gun in his, hand, in his pocket or in his hand. I would see whether I knew that guy was safe and you, and you may have a gun in his hand, but he ain't going to turn around and start shooting at us. So it doesn't really matter what you're around. It's a matter of the mindset of the person that you're around. So if you spend all your time around things where everything is negative, then when you get locked up, don't be surprised because you will, if you get away with it today, then people will clock it. People can't, can't keep their mouths shut. And unfortunately, people broadcast what they're up to on social media. And if they don't do it that way, they all of a sudden start driving the Mercedes fans and expect people, <laughs> you know, to, to not ask why. Um, so do you want to get locked up for the rest of your life or do you want to find a way of doing what you want to do, working in a field that you want to do, uh, earning money and, and be a half decent member of society? Because society is not um, perfect by any means. Don't judge by looks, don't judge by size of house. I mean, you mentioned there that you you know you met a lot of homeless people. You you spent a period of time homeless on the streets of the US. How how does you know a professional sportsman go from from that to to living on the streets? And and how useful was it for you when you you came to engage with the young people? Um, 
Uh, I, I know if you use the US as, as an example, I suppose, um, I could have, I mean, I ended up homeless, but in reality, that's because I didn't really ask for help. It was just a matter of this is the way that it is. Um, I knew people in, if I was in West Hollywood, I knew people who lived in West Hollywood. Um, if I was in another part of town, if you go to Venice or Santa Monica or Marina del Rey or places like that, I knew people who lived there. So in a, in a way, I, I was rootless. Um, uh, you know, it, it, sometimes the biggest problem is you're in one part of town and you have to get to the other side of town. And that could be from a safety perspective, or it could be just a case of the best you're not about. Um, so, uh, you know, the, I, I wouldn't look at it as a negative, but I mean, from a, from a working with young people, you know, there's a lot of young people that are homeless and sometimes having a roof over your head doesn't mean you've got a home. There's a big difference between having a home and having a roof over your head. And there's a very big, big difference between, you know, certain people talk to me about people being homeless. They're not homeless. When people are homeless and desperate, there's a big difference. Uh, and I've experienced a few nights like that. But, you know, in the cold light of day, I've seen worse than that even. So, uh, you know, if you work with young people, I think if I, if I work with young people, I think it's important to, I, if you want to work with people and make a difference, you have to know them as people. And, you know, you have to communicate so that, you work out a the best the best a the person that you're dealing with, and because there's nothing worse than if someone asks a question, someone gets a reply, but in reality, you know that's not really how they feel. But it's either the way they've been programmed to talk, or the fact that there's an element of fear and they don't want to tell you how bad things are. Um, and some people will tell you what you want, what they think you want to hear, and that's also a bad thing. So um, if you talk. No, it's easy. I mean, sport is easy. You know, if, if I'm talking to a, a young batsman or a young bowler, um, as long as I ask the last, you know, you, you can see through it. Does it, you know, you can, you know, if you're getting, if you, if they are being 100% with you. Um, and if people are 100% with you, it's so much easier because you can find a better world. That could be someone who's losing their mind because they keep getting out in a certain way in, in, a, in a game of cricket or someone who keeps getting into, falling into the same trap in everyday life. Um, you know, it's a matter of how can you make a change? And often it's just taking it instead of turning left at the lights, why don't we try turning right? It might take you slightly longer, but it'll get you to your destination and, you know, and you'll, and you'll be relatively unscathed. Um, they obviously, you know, but you can't live like people's lives for them. Uh, and we live in a world where in most cases, people are judged on whether they're bright, thick, uh, could have done better by the age of 18 when they walk out of school. You know, that's yeah. a dangerous sort of way of thinking. Mm. I mean, you were, you know, you were very successful in your cricket career and then, you know, you chose to retire in, in 96. How hard a decision was that for you to make to, to call time on your playing career? Not, not hard at all. Wasn't was hard at all. Um, you've got to remember, I mean, if I think about that period of my life, if I think, you know, so whatever I was, 32, 33, 30, whatever I was, if I think about being very young, always having a bat and ball in my hand, uh, always being in cricketing environments, uh, always being at the cricket ground, uh, and always wanting to play at the time that 
you referred to at the end of my career, I wasn't always ready to play. I wasn't, didn't necessarily want. The journey in between, the wanting to play professional sport when the careers advisor turned, there's two meetings uh, that we had with career advisors. Uh, when I was 13 and the career advisor came into Heaton, Heaton School in Newcastle and, and we went in one by one and the question was, what do you want to be when you grow up? So, and at 13, I said, I want to be a professional cricketer. I got a couple of pamphlets and I was out the door within 30 minutes, uh, 30 seconds. Uh, the following year, he was always getting the same guy. He's always going to get the same reply. Uh, and I went there and the girl that I went with, Angela, um, because we, we, we went in twos by the time we were 14. Uh, what do you want to do when you leave school, son? I said, I want to be able to communicate with this girl, Angela, but better than I do at the moment. Like that, and I was given two more pamphlets and I went out the door. Um, you know, so from 13, 14, I knew I was going to play. Uh, I had an older brother who played professional sport for Warwickshire, was an opening batsman. I had a middle brother, Tony, who was on the staff for three or four years. Uh, got hit by a car twice in the, in the, when he was on the staff at Warwickshire. It's quite an amazing staff. Um, and then, so at a distance from Newcastle, that was always where I was going to go. There was no Durham County Cricket Club. I was always going to have to leave home, and I did. Uh, when I was 16, after I'd taken my last exam at, uh, in the morning, me and myself, uh, myself and Simon Donalds, my best mate who went on to form Viz Comic, we walked out on the same day at the same time. And it was said, I'd be, don't even bother looking back. Um, uh, and over the next 16 years, I played a huge amount of games. Uh, I was mentored by some, some unbelievable people. I met some amazing people uh, in all aspects of life. Uh, but I didn't want to do it anymore. When I joined Warwickshire, I remember thinking, that when, I, when this is all over, I want this club to be in a better place. Uh, and we'd obviously done a treble, we'd done a double. Personally, I held a club, two club records. Um, I was a world record holder. Uh, I'd scored 12,500 runs and got 500 odd weeks, two outbreaks. People said should have done better. But if you play like me, I wanted to win trophies. So my trophy cabinet's bigger than most. So I would judge it on that. And the fact that I played such a lot of games must have, must have meant that I must have been all right as a player. And my job, you see, it was explained to me by Bob Willis when, when I was very young. Your job is to bowl less balls to get wickets than those around you. So I was to be a shot bowler because I could bowl quick. And uh, he said, when you bat, you've got a good enough technique to bat anywhere in this batting order um, from opening uh, to, you know, I wouldn't want to bat three. That's a position someone like Brian Lara wanted to bat. Um, but four in Monday cricket. Um, so I opened quite a lot. I batted four, five, six. But if you bat and bowl, probably five, is, five to me was too high. Uh, that would be because I need to put my feet up. And if you play like me, it's a lot of energy. Um, uh, so, you know, I'd, 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 I, didn't, I, I didn't want to play anymore. Uh, but there were aspects of it that, uh, you know, you retain your contacts overseas. Uh, so, you know, it, it might have been I was doing something different, but, you know, the friends were always there. Um, and I wanted to see other parts of the world. I wanted to play sport because I wanted to see the world. So 
I'd spent, started to spend quite a lot of time in America in that time, particularly Houston. So I spent a lot of time in Texas and I saw another side of life. Um, and people couldn't understand why I was in Texas. Uh, one or two of them who came over and stayed very quickly understood why I wanted to be in Texas because it was unbelievable. Anything you wanted, you could have. You know, I was cash rich, drove a V10 Dodge Viper. Uh, but you see, I was educating myself when I was there. Um, you know, I spent time in educational facilities. Uh, you know, you're observe, absor- you know, you're observing things the whole time. Um, caught up with some musicians who live in America, uh, who were pals. Uh, you know, and I'd just gone through a big divorce, you know, that, um, and I didn't see that really, uh, you know, sort of improving in the immediate future. Um, so, uh, you know, that time of life, I, I knew that once Bob Woolmer left Warwickshire, it didn't matter who they brought in, it was never going to be the same. And I'd set out my goal, as I said, my goal was I wanted to move this whole thing forward. And it was Warwickshire County Cricket Club. And it's a huge club. You know, it's not like playing for other clubs that I wouldn't mention because it no, because it would be demeaning if you know if you would say this club is big, it's not as big as that. Uh, but that's a big club, um, expectations are high, and what we did, the outcomes in terms of trophy winning has never been higher. We what are we in six trophies in 24 months and lost in a final, came joint second in another competition and on a technicality we questioned it with the ECB uh, and they said no we stand by that decision so that was the that was the double season after the treble if the ECB had actually done it by the book we'd have done true trebles in the banks on the bank so um yeah and and also mentally and physically you're absolutely shattered because we just played um two seasons you'd probably say three seasons where that's probably the equivalent of six physically and mentally in, an, in a normal professional career because you never stop. You're always on the road. And if you're hugely successful in business, making bag loads of money, uh, you can walk out that office and in theory walk into a local bar and be anonymous, you know, where people aren't asking you, picking your brains about this, that and the other. Whereas in sport, it's very visual. And if you're very successful, you're on telly a lot. Um, you're in the newspapers a lot. So, you know, people know who you are. Um, so it's very difficult. You end up living at 24-7. So it was kind of, people say, why did you leave the Eagles? Or why, why did you leave Van Halen? Well, I understand 100% because you can't live it. You may have started out wanting it that the way to be, but when it really kicks in, uh, you can't get away from it. You, you mentioned there, you know, all the successes you had and and you know, the, the the problems and issues you had at the end of your, your playing career with drugs and things like that. Were you a victim of your own success? I've never quite understood what that what that actually means. I think the more successful you become, the more the bigger the audience is, more people come, more people know who you are, more doors are opened. Um uh, you know, I mean, if I think about that, that time of life, you know, I mean, I would say many friends from that time of life, from all backgrounds, um, I, you know, I think some are wiser than others. I thought that uh, once I realized that there were issues to be addressed, I had to take myself away from those environments. Um, 
Uh, and, you know, probably because if I looked in the mirror, I thought there was a guy that was worth saving because I know that if you live that way, um, uh, even if you're very fit, it'll kill you. Um, and even if you are very fit, it will still have an aspect on how you live your life. Um, uh, and some people, hey, look at Keith Richards, you know, Keith Richards, um, what is he in the seventies? You know, certain people thought he wouldn't make it out of his twenties. Um, uh, other people weren't so lucky. Brian Jones is right hand man in the Rolling Stones made it to 27. Jim Morrison made it to 27. Jimi Hendrix made it to 27. Amy Winehouse made it to 27. Um, Kurt Cobain made it to 27. So I was lucky to make it past 27 in the eyes of, uh, if you want to go down the rock and roll route. But um, uh, I think that if you do things like that, you're actually looking for something else. Uh, you, but you just have to wake up to that. Um, that won't make bring you what you're actually looking for. Unless you look in the mirror and think there's someone that you don't really think is worth saving. I mean, you, you talk there about, you know, at the end of your career and, and realising that there were issues that needed to be addressed. How, how much support did you get at the end of your career when you, when you chose to retire? Was there, was there much there for someone in 1996 from, you know, the PCA or, or Warwickshire or your teammates, or was it just you were on your own then? I think, I think the key to it is, is that maybe it was too late. Once people worked out what, it, what, what, what had happened, it was too late. So, people, so it, 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 people were reactive rather than proactive. Mm. I've seen, I, I've got people, mates who I see, uh, I see signs in them. You know, I mean, if I were to say, mate, do you think you've got a problem? They say, no, I'm not buying what they've just said, that one word, no, because I think they are. But it's a matter of it's got nothing to do with me. But I care because I don't want to see, you know, I, I know where it leads. And, um, you know, sort of patterns of, of how you live your life. Uh, you know, I can, I can sort of give a false impression. People think that people are up to all sorts of things because of the pattern in which people live their life. And sometimes that's not the case at all. But, you know, often it is. Um, uh, you know, and people will always fall into the trap of looking for, searching for something. Um, and they think they'll find it through what it turns out to be the wrong thing. Uh, so, um, Sorry, what was the question again? What so, were you talking about? So, um, support at the end of your career, was there much available to you? Yeah, there was, but it was, I think it was too late. I mean, you know, I did get support um, in, in certain ways, and then it was a matter of rolling up, rolling up your sleeves and working like hell, and I did. Um, but, you know, there were still other issues, which, I, which you know, I never spoke about at the time. And, uh, you know, I wrote a best-selling book in 2007 called Wasted with a question mark at the end of it. Um, and I never wrote about some of those issues in that book. But, you know, I'm, at the moment I'm writing the book and I'm talking about stuff like that. Um, uh, so there's no, there's no perfect support system. I think the key to it is, is who goes, who is the initial contact with the person who is perceived to have the problem or quite clearly has a problem. Who was the first port of call? And their assessing of the situation and the best way to help this individual has to be absolutely spot on. Because if it's not, 
it might be the only chance you ever get to help this person. Um, uh, and I think that's an element of what could be improved. Do you do any work Because there's a lot of people who are good at what they do, they're just in the wrong job or their job should be tweaked so it don't include that. Someone else is better at doing that bit. Um, uh, and, you know, if you talk about sportsmen, you talk about any person from any aspect of life at the moment with COVID-19, people are finding things out about themselves that, uh, uh, well, maybe certain things are coming to the surface, you know? Do you do any work now with, you know, professional sportsmen about, you know, the, the using the issues that you had at the end of your career to, to help educate them and help them? From time to time, I'm asked. Not officially. Certain people have contacted me, you know, at different times. A um, bit like this, what we're talking about now, I do a bit of this where people will sort of get hold of me um, and speak to them. So, you know, there's a... There's, I don't care, you know, as I say, it's not a matter of whether you are a bank manager or a professional mm. sportsman or the guy that reads news at 10. Everyone has issues. Um, and sometimes those issues aren't issues that you brought to the table. It's if you're directly affected by it. It could be you've been attacked. It could be that you are being bullied. It could be that you are feeling whatever you're feeling. And, you know, people mask it. You know, people think they go to the pub and they have two pints and all of a sudden, now oh, things are not so bad. Well, you know what? Wake up. Uh, and, and you only really do wake up when you wake up. So, you know, those around who care, not everyone has the support mechanism that professional sportsmen have or other people have. Uh, so, you know, we're blessed like that. But there's no perfect system and everything can be improved. Um, you mentioned your book, you know, for anyone who's not read Paul's book, you really should. It's it's fantastic. Why the title "Wasted" with a question mark? Well, it has many meanings. We wasted last night, um, you know, which sometimes I was accused of. Uh, did I waste my ability? Question mark. Um, you know, sort of. It was wasted for all sorts of reasons. You know, I mean, it was a fairly obvious title. Um, uh, you know, and it means so many things to so many different people. And yet, you know, so many people are undermined. I mean, if I had a penny for every time that someone had told me that I need to change the way that I play to become more consistent, whereas my point would always be, you know what, if I'm playing well, then I'm consistently threatening the opposition, which not every player can is blessed like that. And it's not about it pulling your own wires saying that. I knew it. You know, I've done it enough times. And, you know, don't go on to me about all that old cobblers. Because I'm not having it. <laughs> uh, you know, and sometimes you have to take it on the chin when you're 18. But, you know, when you're 22 and you hold world records and you've, you've done it multiple times, and it's actually them that's holding you back. You know, I mean, when people, when I watch the way that certain guys play cricket now, that's how I used to play in 1980. You know, when I was 16, I played like that. Uh, which is why Willis said, your job is to do this and to do that. Um you know, and every time I played that way, I, I broke a club record. The youngest player ever to score 1,500 runs for Warwickshire. I played more their way. You know, I was still exciting to watch. I still thought that I, I would play more shots that would, that would upset opposition bowlers. Um, but even when, I, even when I played their way and broke cl club records, that, you know, the, 
the thing that happened the next season is I stopped being an opening batsman and they put me down to six, you know, without any sort of way of mentoring you through that thing that has just completely done your head. Um, so, uh, again, you are a product of your environment, you know, and um, I suppose the fact that I played there for 16 years at Warwickshire, um, you know, proved that I wanted to be there enough and they knew I did enough things right. I, you, you say on, I, I think it's a lovely sort of last page bit where you say, um, a journalist said to me that I'd find this cathartic and I didn't know what that mean, but meant, but yes, it was. What did you take away from writing the book for you? You know, what was the, the best thing about it? I can, I can talk like this. Yeah. yeah. Um, and 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 that's not a and that's not a problem. It's not a problem probably because of the time of life that I'm in, um, and the life that I have lived. And and um, I wrote that book because at that time of life it was best for me to, to write it down on paper, in effect, on a laptop. But I've been paid to write since I was 24. Um, not regularly, but you know I, I would write. And when I write, I get paid for it. I write columns. Um, and, you know, it, so for me, I would, I, would, I would write it down. Yes, it was cathartic. Certain things at that time I couldn't talk about, which are some of the things that I'm writing about now because I couldn't talk about them to communicate them in a book called Wasted 13, 14 years ago. Um, you know, most people, when they, think, when they get offered opportunity to write a book, um, someone sits down with them and takes notes, goes away, writes, goes back, puts it down in front of them and say, what do you think? Um, I wrote every page. I wrote 500. I, I wrote a load of writing, printed it off, and, and in effect, it was 500 day, four pages. I put it in front of a pal and um, said, have a look through that and see what, what you think. And I said, I'm looking for 12 things and they're going to be the chapters, 12 things that I definitely should write about. But even he didn't know about some of the issues in life. And he was one of my best mates. Um, and I hadn't written them in the 500 pages. Um, uh, so he said, if you write this, 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 and this, and whatever, 12 things, they're your chapters. So then I went through those 500 pages, edited it, anything that was linked to that, looked at it, and made it better. And that was that book. Um, you know, and it sold as it did, but it wasn't written for an audience that traditionally would buy a book by someone with my background. Most people who with a background in professional sport would try and write a book for people who buy a book written by ex-professional sportsmen, whether it be buying it for granddad, grandpa, dad's birthday, whatever. Um, I didn't write the book for that audience. I knew that if that audience bought it, then we'd sell twice as many because I'm writing a book about life through the eyes of someone who played professional sport. That's why I'm writing about some of the things that I wrote about in that book. This book takes it so much further. And I think that Wasted is more relevant in 2020 than it was in 2007. I certainly took a lot from it when I read it about, you know, about life and about, you know, experiences of mental health and dealing with those things. It, I find it, you know, an excellent book to write. Do, the new one, does that build on top of it? Is it, is it in a similar vein or is it different in some ways it's um you can't write the same book twice yeah yeah but i think it's very now it's very now in december 
I sat with a guy in Edge, at Edgebaston and we, and we recorded six podcasts. Uh, the last podcast uh, that was uh, recorded on that day, I talked about, um, this is pre-COVID-19. And when he, when, he, when he edited those six podcasts, he edited the last one right at the start of COVID-19. And he said, it's almost like you forecast some world event where we had to this and yeah. And I said, no, I said that at the end, I said, I thought that we all needed to reassess the way that we live our lives, what the, what, what the real, real important issues in life were, what the dangers were. And I said, and I've concluded, and I said, that's why I walk the beach. Um, you know, I'll jump in a car, drive four hours, and, and at, at three o'clock in the morning, I can be walking the beach. Now, whether some people think that's nuts, whereas in reality, no, I, see, I, I don't think that's nuts. I can do it. If I want to do it, if I want to walk a beach, I go walk a beach. Better, better for me to walk a beach than be stuck in the city um, that I don't want to be in at that time. You know, at that time, I can work on a laptop, I can walk, work on a phone, not really tied to anything. So the fact that we're tied to everything so rigidly and everyone puts themselves in this position, unless you want to buy your yurt and a VW camper van and just take off, and even that isn't encouraged now. Um, you know, it was a cathartic book. It was an easy book to write. The thing was, how much can you write about? I've got external hard drives with millions of words on subject. Mm. You know, it's a matter of just pick them off if and when world events happen. Something like COVID-19 happens, as I say, I recall, it's like living with post-traumatic stress and it's like living under apartheid. So even Piers Morgan has rushed a book out about the effects of, uh, of uh, COVID-19 and his observations. Well, I've seen elements of this in my life and in other people's lives for the last, you know, since, since 2020, uh, since, since the year 2000. I mean, so you, you've since you retired, you've written a best-selling book. You've helped thousands of young people. Do you have, you know, career highlights after playing in the same way that you would, you know, someone might say that your career highlights on the field were, were winning those trophies? Do they are they similar? Do they compare? Um. Well, you know, life evolves. You know, what gave you a kick? Um, it's a bit like, would you rather be Elton John or Bernie Taupin? So Elton goes out and shakes his batty and, 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 and you know, plays his piano. Uh, but he's on the road for 18 months. And he's been doing it since he's in his 20s. Uh, and he has the, the, the worries with his voice. Whereas Bernie sits at home and writes poems, writes lyrics. But he earns as much as Elton. And he can walk down the street, but Elton couldn't. Elton needs a bunch of people around him in order to get in the restaurants to, to keep other people away. What do you want? So it's a bit like when you're a professional sportsman, you're very visual um, and you're very noticeable. Um, that's not something that you, that you want all your life, surely. Surely. You know, it's almost like the mountains are calling and I need to go. You know, that's almost like retirement from professional sport. Um, you know, the, the, the life that I've had post being a professional sportsman has been hugely enlightening. I've met some amazing people, people that I would never have met if I hadn't, um, if I, you know, the thing is, when I played professional sport, when I stopped playing, it was the first time in my life I'd ever had bank holidays where, you know, I could go away 
you know, I could go away at weekends, rock and roll. You know, you know, I'm, I've gifted myself that through retirement unexpectedly. Um, so, you know, you get opportunities, you know, you get offers. You can go in July to the United States of America because you're not playing that taunting or in a, in a quarterfinal of this or, um, you know, so in a way you're almost like chasing rootlessness. It's almost like having gypsy residence. You can pretty much do what you want. Um, and that is something that, I've, you know, maybe sport teaches you that because you're never in the same place more than a few days. You know, someone told me you've got to go to the office five days a week, nine to five for the rest of your life. I'm saying I'm out of here because I know I couldn't do it mm. because I've never, never had to do it. You know, so I'm, I'm not going to start in my mid fifties. Um, so I met people of similar, you know, of similar attitude, you know, the community workers in America, you know, we would be out at four o'clock in, in, in a Chevrolet van, but four o'clock in the morning, you know, when other people who did nine to fives were sort of like fast asleep, um, ready to put their suit on and their crisp white shirt and be at the office at 8.30. Um, whereas I, I think that our, our work was more important than theirs. Um, so it depends what you want. I wanted to see the world. I still want to see aspects of the world. I still want to see other parts of the world. In many parts of the world, I'm going to return to because I know it's not where you expect to see me. Uh, but if I were to say, come on, I'm going to take you, you'd get it. You really would get it because it's an aspect of life that I think certain people should see. So if you get opportunity to see it and you meet fascinating people along the way, I think you sell yourself short. Um, from you, you know, your, your highlights from the playing days, is the armour cricket memorabilia junkie, do you still have it? Is it around the house? Is it gone or is it stored away things like shirts medals Any, like anything, that? anything that's been given to me recently my 13 year old daughter has because uh because it's best it's with her and uh, she finds it funny when she looks at me to think that i was a professional sportsman because she only knows me as dad and she's never known <laughs> and she's never known me as um as a professional sportsman uh the the big trophies uh, you know, man of the matches and stuff like that. There's a lot of it. And it's on a, in a, a pal of mine, Tony Fink. He's got a big house and uh, he's got its own bar. And uh, it's, it's on his walls. It's, uh, you know, things like the decanters. I'm sure he puts brandy and whiskey in. Um, but uh, yeah, it's all framed up. A lot of it on his walls in his... Uh, in his um, we meant, we spoke about it not that long back, but so I, I mean, as I say, because I, I I live in so many different places. I'm in Birmingham at the moment, um, but I know that you know fairly soon. Obviously, depending on the restrictions of lockdown, but you know, I want to go and spend time in the north. Um, I want to go to the west coast of Scotland. I want to do a lot of things, and that's just you know within the United Kingdom. So, you know, quite often I'll put I'll put four or five boxes in the back of my Jeep, put my laptop in, put a speaker in so I can listen to music in my tent and I'm gone. Um, so having things like worrying about where am I going to put my memorabilia, that, that sort of attitude went way, way ago and certain people or, you know, Finchie said, I need to have your stuff because you lose it. Like I lost so much. Mm. Um, but, you know, so the, the, those things, yeah, they're there, but I don't see them uh, regularly. I don't have to, I live with 
What advice would you give, Paul, to a, a young player starting out in a cricket career now? Wow. Um, well, I think it would start, I'd have to look at who, who was sat in front of me because if, if they were, I'm sat in Birmingham now and Edgebaston is a mile away from me. Um, if they were born and bred in Birmingham, then their circumstances would be very different. They'd probably still be living with mom and dad. They'd probably still have their local cricket club down the road where all their mates are. Um, and uh, this city would be very familiar with them. Whereas if I had a, a kid who'd come from London and wasn't familiar with Birmingham and was going to have to move into digs or move into a three-bedroom house with two other players uh, in a part of town where I could probably advise you for that or against that, etc. So everyone's circumstances are different. So um, I think the key to it is, if you're a young sportsman, you have to be honest, but in order to be 100% honest in in an unfamiliar place, which is what professional sports is, um, the, those that communicate with those people have got to be very good communicators because they've got to take many things in, into account, not just whether this kid um, really can bat or bowl or has something or uh, we've got to do a bit of work with him, etc. That's just one aspect of his life. So um, in a way, I probably better ask better questions than people who are coaches because they're only interested or they'll tell you different. And I suppose I'm slightly wrong for, for wording it that way. But in theory, they get paid to make these people better cricketers. Their skill necessarily isn't making them more rounded people, which is where we were so lucky because when Bob Woolmer became our coach on his very first day at Edgebaston, he said, in amongst many things, if I can make you better, 5% better people, you'll automatically become better cricketers. And I remember listening to that and thinking, rock and roll, because that's how I think. Uh, and Woody said many things. Um, uh, Bob Wilmer got more out of us than any other person, but I think that's because he came at the right time. It was the right time for him. He developed his way of communicating and his way of coaching. Um, out the way in South Africa um, and we played enough cricket where we knew we were good and we knew when we were hot we were really hot but we weren't hot enough we were looking for something more and it wasn't our ability to turn it on it was a matter of how to turn it on um, so when Woolly came um, uh, it was you know it was a complete it took us to a completely different level I've probably gone off the mark here what was the original question <laughs> No, it's, it's fascinating. You know, um, advice to a young player starting their career. That's... Yeah, so Woolly, so Woolly said to us, if I can make you 5% better people. So as a young man, if you get asked the right questions in a manner where you know it's not threatening and you know that person cares, um, you're more inclined to tell them. Um, so uh, my advice to them would be very much depending on who's right sat and right in front of me, whether it's a crew. I mean, that to me is no different to having a bunch of people in front of me. Um, and they're a princess trust type audience. You know, standing up in a corporate environment where you're paid to talk about professional sport and Brian Lara and, and this, that and the other, that's easy. Standing up in front of a young audience of people who are excluded from society, you know, where they feel that they've been put down for this, that and the other. Um, uh, you know that isn't necessarily that is that is not, not 
might not be as easy for me to talk about because I've never had that. I've never understood it. But I've, you know what? I've been amongst it an awful lot and I've witnessed it. And I've felt it just as much as the people. I've seen, I've stood in the court in Inglewood where a, an innocent kid got 160 years and he wasn't coming out. He wasn't going to see daylight ever again. And we knew he was innocent. Imagine that. So um, in certain ways, you're trying to guide people away from finding themselves in that situation. Um, so young people dealing with young, dealing with young cricketers is easy because they get paid to attend. It's where you have to, if it's where you have to try and help someone who where half the time you don't know where they are. They haven't turned up again. And people judge them on not turn on the not turning up aspect. Whereas I'm more interested in why this time they haven't turned up. Because if that's if you it can affect the, that pattern, then you find that you will get people turn up more often. So what I would be asking a young sportsman would be the outcome of that would have to be they turn up more often than perform. Do you understand? Exactly. That, will, that will then move them forward, both as in their skill, in their confidence levels, and, and it make people aware of what they can bring to the table rather than be, just being some young lad who's now a professional sports man or man or woman. You know, so it's how you communicate with people. That's where our shortfall is in sport, working with young people in communities, don't even talk about politics or COVID-19. Um, because, you know, if you send out mixed messages and you, you, you know, better to be, better to, you better you hate me for what I am than me, than me, than me having to put on a face to go out in order for you to like me. Because in reality, I don't live my life for likes. You know, if someone clicks and says like, you know what, thanks. But in reality, it's the message. I, I don't even know what the message was that I put out that you like. Um, uh, so, you know, it's, it's all messages. Sometimes in life, you have to say things. Sometimes in life, people have said to me, you might not like what I'm going to say, but it's the way that it is. That doesn't mean to say it's right, but it's the way that life is. So I would look to move away from that so that someone else doesn't find themselves in that position in the first place because I'm going to be repeating what was said to me, which proves that life hadn't moved on. And what about to someone who's coming to the end of their, their cricketing career? What what advice would you give to them? Would it be different to, to a younger player or, or would it be di or would it be the same? Depends whether they've been in the game for 16 years and seen the world and or you know, whether they're married, whether they're single, whether they're this, whether they're that. But I mean, you know, do you want to work indoors, you want to work outdoors. Some people want to be sports coaches, which means that you probably spend half your life outdoors. There's only so many jobs in cricket to be a coach. Um you know, do you want to work for the company? People always said, you know, for every person you meet in life, you should take a business card up every one of them. Well, if that was the case, I'd have business cards like a block of flats. You know, but it doesn't mean that. It helps. You know, I don't want to be an insurance salesman. I don't want to work for the government. I don't want to this, don't want to that. It's what is going to make you happy. That's the key. Because if you're happy, you've got a half a chance. If you're doing something you don't love or you don't want to go to work for, then I'm saying you're nuts but you probably put yourself in the system where you mortgage up to the hill or you this, that, and the other. Everyone's circumstances are different. But I think the key is, what, do you, what will make you happy? Because the thing that will probably make you happy isn't the thing that you think will make you happy. Because most people set their sights on a certain job, a certain position, work in a certain field. And there's only so many jobs in that field. So if they don't work in that field, they won't be happy. 
what will make you happy other than working in that field, which you've only got a very small chance of working in, just as you only had a very small chance of becoming a professional cricketer, but it worked. So sometimes in life, it's better not to be good, but it's best to be lucky. So who knows what I would say, you know? If you're an Ian Bosom and you come in and you've just finished your test career, well, you've probably got a wine, you've probably got a vineyard in France or Adelaide, which, you know, and you've probably got a big pile up the road and your opportunities to advertise Weetabix are greater than mine, Ian. Um, you know, if you're, if, yeah, if you're not Ian Bosom and you, you know, it's a very different, uh, everyone's career is different, but what will make you happy, I think is the key, is the key thing, you know? And, and if you don't know what's going to make you happy, then you know what? I would think about it long and hard. Because life's about happiness. It's not about, it's not about pleasing the boss. It's really not. During lockdown, I set about reading cricket books, which I should have read before. And Paul's book, Wasted, with a question mark, was one that I read and I'm glad I did. His book is a story of Paul's life, and what he's achieved since he's retired playing. It was award-winning for a reason, and if you haven't read it, then really you should. I find the amount of people that Paul has helped since he's retired is completely inspirational, and I consider it a privilege to have talked to him about it, and it's a, a conversation that will stay with me forever. He deserves every accolade for his work post-cricket that comes his way, and I hope many do. Next time we travel to the South Coast to speak to a T20 World Cup winner and multiple domestic trophy winner with Sussex. But join me as we find out what Michael Yardy has been doing since he retired from the game as we welcome him back to the pavilion. So that's all from me for now. Stay in touch, take care of yourselves and others. Bye bye for now.